1: Baby, I'll give it to you. That
2: yeah, looks really good.
1: Yes, it does. It's
2: dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin?
1: Yes, I'm all okay, to Hello, welcome to the December 2021 edition of Space Buffins, and They Said It Wouldn't Last. In partnership with The Naked Scientists, I'm Richard Hollingham.
3: And I'm Sue Nelson. This time, who said it wouldn't last? Nobody did. That's That's nonsense. (laughs) Nobody said it wouldn't last. Anyway, this time we'll be in the mission control room of a UK space debris mission and talking plants in space with Emma Doughty from the Gardeners of the Galaxy podcast, including a recent hot, and that's a clue, success
0: this is the first time that anybody has grown a fruiting vegetable in space. It's a big challenge to get crops to fruit in space, to flower and fruit, and it is a major step forward for NASA to be able to do this.
1: Can I just say that Gardeners of the Galaxy is (laughs) undoubtedly the best name for any podcast ever?
3: It absolutely is. And wait until you hear our conversation. It's so interesting it's lively fun and um, yeah uh, uh, she's great
1: no pressure then for our first guest, <laughs> Airbus Engineer and STEM Ambassador, John Chinner. He's worked on the prototype for the European ExoMars rover, is the Electronics Faculty Leader at the Defence and Space Engineering Academy, and is involved with the student coding challenge AstroPi. And within the next few weeks, two new AstroPi payloads will be flown to the ISS on board a Dragon spacecraft. Hello, John. Hello. Now, let's talk about AstroPie. R- remind us what it is, what it does, how people get involved.
4: It's essentially a coding, I want to say competition, but I don't like to say competition because it's actually um, open to everyone to have a go at. So
3: We use um, the word challenge.
4: Challenge, that's a good, that's a good way to do it because it, it, it is a challenge uh, to an extent and how, and how far you want to take the challenge is really up to you. So back in 2014, 15, before Tim Peake launched on his Principia mission, a group of people in UK space came together and thought, how can we address the, the need for coders in the space industry? And we came up with Astro Pi. So in partnership with the Raspberry Pi Foundation, we decided to to send some Raspberry Pis to the space station. And that was really based on a fortuitous meeting between Edmund Upton of Raspberry Pi and a few people decided let's do something amazing and send some Raspberry Pis into space. So it took a bit of time to formulate itself, come together and a team I uh, had a lot of challenges because, you know, sending hardware up to space isn't particularly easy, particularly when it's an educational payload as well. You know, it's seen as being almost like a low priority. So you don't get a lot of attention from people, but it, all the stuff that needs to be done to send it to space has to be done properly. And I was brought in and I decided that Airbus uh, defense space needed to be involved with this program and um, was really lucky to be able to lobby enough people to get some money to do the shock and vibration and EMC testing on the original two AstroPi payloads. And we did that in Portsmouth. Electromagnetic compatibility. So it's basically to make sure that when Tim got these two AstroPis out of the bag and switched them on in the Columbus module, it didn't make the lights turn out on the space station. (laughs) Um, You know, these things have to be tested and the requirements that we had to test to so this is a a document that lists how what your piece of equipment has to meet in order to be used in the columbus module on the space station was about three inches thick it was pretty pretty daunting to to go with an educational payload but we did so you know it's to check that the payload is not going to interfere with the space station and and also that the space station isn't going to actually interfere with the payload because it would be a bit embarrassing to get it go through all that all those steps and then get it up to the space station and tim switches it on and then something happens on the space station and then the thing dies and things like the EMC are quite important. Um, Shock and vibration, not so much. That's basically to check the payload is going to make it to space intact. So with the original Pi for Principia, we had to do some testing and it was against the Soyuz profile because originally those payloads were going to be going in with Tim. And for some reason, perhaps because it's an educational payload, they got bumped down the manifest and ended up going on a different vehicle and a different ascent profile. So it was a bit, touch and go for me at one point because we tested these things on a shock and vibration table in accordance with the the expected environment on a soyuz and they went on a different vehicle an unmanned vehicle an uncrewed vehicle so it was um different and it was probably more harsh i was i was a little bit on on tenterhooks at the time that these things were going to make it to space and work but they did and they did a, a, a fantastic job of of exposing coding as a as a job as a career as something fun to do to young people and uh it was it was amazing to be involved with it and to go up to Raspberry Pi in, in Cambridge and sit in the room with fellow space nerds from the UK Space Agency and, and various other places and judge the competition entries it blew, it blew us away the quality of the entries blew us away for that first round it was it was amazing to see what the schools had produced and it was it was an honor to be involved with it and then to see Tim up there running those those experiments for those schools downloading the data and seeing the schools using it it's fantastic really excited when this when Astra Pi 2 came around and they reached out and said, "Can you do some more testing for us?" and I said, "Yes, of course, not knowing whether Airbus would be willing or, or happy to put its hand in its pocket and it was it 's one of those weird ones, and you know things happen sometimes for a reason it 's not easy, but it happens for a reason so so twenty twenty you know, a bit of a mixed year for people all around." Well, Well, this this is this is the thing, and it's it's an interesting story that you know we in in Airbus Defence and Space we have a budget for our outreach. We're going sending ambassadors out to schools, and naturally. 2020, we couldn't do it. We couldn't send our ambassadors out to schools. So that budget was not going to be spent. So here I had another method of spending it, and it was to do the, the uh, shock and vibration testing on the new AstroPi payload. So we, we reappropriated that money from our outreach budget across to AstroPi. And if it had come to me in another year when we were still doing all, our, all of our outreach, I would have really struggled to find the money to pay for that testing campaign. So you know, things happen sometimes for a reason. And it, for me, it's really important to. to it was for me. It, it was and it is really important for Airbus Defence and Space to be involved with these programs. When I went to the the the, uh, the managing director of of, of uh, Airbus Defence and Space back in 2015, he said, "Well, what am I going to get for my money?" And I said, "Well, Tim Peake's going to." at some point be in space in the future, hold one of these things up in, 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 into a video camera and say, look, I've got an Astro Pi up here in space. And then we can jump in in the background and say, yes, and we tested those things in Portsmouth Airbus Defence and Space. So we can ride on the back of the publicity, which actually is good for us and our image and, you know, young people seeing the name of the company I work for and seeing us as a space company in the UK and maybe thinking about a job in the future. Right. Well, it, it as long so as you, you don't
3: mention Airbus Defence and Space, well, I think you've said it about 15 times, you Well, you've you know, earned your money.
4: Yeah, okay. Well, the, the, the thing is, it makes me laugh because back in the day when I, when I joined the company, it was actually called Astrium. You, Probably remember it being called yes, Astrium. I do, and, yeah. I, and I used to go around places and they'd say, Oh, you, where, where do you work? And I go, Astrium. And they go, Well, oh, I've never heard of it. And then they changed over to be Airbus Defense and Space. And okay. then you explain to someone <laughs> and they would go, Didn't that used to be Astrium? And you go, Yes, but at the time nobody ever heard of Astrium. So now, now you do. So it, it, what's in a name? What's in a name? You know, it's, it's a bit of a mouthful, Airbus Defense and Space. Um, <laughs> I'm not on commission. I'm not on commission, but uh, you know, it it is like the uh, the coupon. I suppose it does what it says on the tin a little bit more, doesn't it? So we can we can. All right. Well, let's
3: let's go into what AstroPi does on on the tin. What can AstroPi do, and what can't it do?
4: Good question. So the idea of AstroPi is that we put the hardware in space, and young people, students, can use that hardware in space to do science. The AstroPy hardware has got temperature sensors, humidity sensors, pressure sensors, it's got a screen, it's got buttons. And the idea was all these pieces of hardware are available for you to use for your science and you can use them how you like. And the criteria for success for AstroPy is actually quite low. There's part of AstroPy called Mission Zero, where you get 30 seconds of code time in space and you can write your code and you can actually succeed with as little as four lines of Python code. And there's guides out there of how to do it. So the, the level you need to achieve in, in coding to be able to succeed in Astro Pi is, is low enough that lots of people are able to do it. So it's not a really critical, high thinking thing where only the best of the best get their opportunity to get their code in space. Anyone can get their code in space.
3: So give me an example of what, say, a student has programmed an Astro Pi to do while it's been in space.
4: Well, in the original flight, so the the harbour that's up there now and with Tim's mission, there was a reaction time game where Tim had in the flight plan to switch on the Astro Pi, play the reaction time game, and then through his mission, keep doing it. And the data was downloaded to the school and they worked out if he got better at it or worse at it because he'd been in space. There was another bit of code that actually the, the Astro Pi was placed against a window, and it was taking images of the Earth, and it was actually analyzing the, the health of the, the, the plant matter on the land masses. Real science being done by this educational payload up in space. So, uh, some fun things like you know, some games, the usual interesting, fun coding games you can do on in Python, but actually some real science, and it was amazing to see. So and then the new payloads are even better. They've got um, a, a coral machine learning dongle in there, so they can do some really powerful computing. And it's the same idea, again, that we put the hardware in space and let the schools uh, and the young people come up with the ideas of how to use it to stimulate their creative thinking. So you don't follow a guide and do the science. You've got to come up with the science yourself. That thinking, that logic is actually part of the process.
3: So what's happening in the upcoming launch? What will those two Pi payloads be doing?
4: so they're going to be well replacing the two that are up there it's a it's a i don't know what's the word i'm thinking of like a technical refresh the, the two that are up there right now are broken no they're not broken they still they still work but they're they're kind of old technology they're they're an older version of the of the raspberry pi you know they're slower and older now there's a newer version so let's let's fly some newer versions and they're more powerful and able to do more things in space so some of the original data was um, from the original flight was you know we we'll, gather the data and download it to you to process on the ground. So now that with this machine learning dongle and a more powerful Raspberry Pi computer some of the processing can be done in space with the you know off the shelf Raspberry Pi computer. So it's a brand new version much quicker much much faster uh, much more capable but that's not Detracting from the original ones, which actually were pretty good, and still are pretty good, and um, I've got a real soft spot for those because they were they were an amazing thing to be involved with back in the day with Tim's mission.
1: I'm just looking at your pictures on Twitter. Has of...
3: <laughs> he got bored with this? No, no, honestly, no. no. Um,
1: I'm intrigued by your 3D printed Mars rover that you've uh, that you've produced.
4: Well, I don't like to think I've produced it. So I'm I'm really, really lucky that the company I work for, shall we say, um, are <laughs> uh, involved with the ESA ExoMars mission. So up in Stevenage, um, design integration of this ExoMars rover. As a self-confessed space nerd, I have access to the people and the teams and the, the clean rooms up there. So they have a 3D printed version of this, this ExoMars rover. Um, and I asked them, Politely, can I have one, please, for my outreach? And they said, uh, they said, yeah, sure, we'll send you one. So they printed me this 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 model of the ExoMars rover, and it sits in my cabin at home. And I take it out on the road with me when I'm talking about space and particularly with ExoMars. And that's and different
3: it, to Yuri 3, is it? It is, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so we better say what Yuri
4: 3 is. That's this fully functioning mini Mars rover. You built that one, though, didn't you? Yes, I did. So back in, I think it was 2014, there was a partial eclipse, and we went to the BBC Stargazing uh, live at Leicester Racecourse, and we took Bridget, one of the prototype mars rovers along so so in your intro you said that i was involved with the prototype mars rovers i haven't been hands-on involved with them but actually i can take the prototypes out to events as a stem ambassador and i'm a a rover driver trained to drive these rovers at public events which is cool that's a cool description (laughs) so a mars
3: rover driver that's brilliant yeah
4: bridget and bruno were the two prototypes that we we have mainly uh, take out to the public and they're the ones you've seen on blue peter and in in, uh, new scientist and we had Bridget the Mars Rover with us, and it didn't work particularly well, um, which is which is not for me as a high tech company. You want to be displaying high tech to the to the to the public, and a rover that doesn't work particularly well isn't what you want to display. So I was driving back to Stevenage with this rover in the van and behind me, and I thought, you know, I I like building stuff. I'm an electrical engineer, hardware engineer. I could build a little rover, something that I can put in a car rather than in a van, and take out to schools and events and demonstrate what a Mars Rover looked like looks like how they work what they do but without having the logistics of taking a full-size huge Mars rover with me and basically that's what I did and that was something I've built up over the years so I call Yuri like my flight rover it's not it wouldn't survive flight in space necessarily but it looks like and it's got the the technology unit that would be in space so for instance the the chassis this shiny chassis on it is made from flight grade aluminium it's got a thermal blanket around it you know it's got six wheels independently steerable wheels so so it's all it's not a, a model of the XMR's rover but it's all has got all the bits you need to talk about how a rover operates on another planet it was an idea I had and I always had these dreams of oh, I wouldn't be great to go to a school and do this and and now I'm doing those things with this, this rover of mine. And it's and it's just amazing to be able to take a, a rover in the back of the car, put it in a room, talk to young people about science and engineering and what Mars looks like and why it's why we send robots, what the robots do, and then set up a scenario where I put a rover in another room, I set up a little ground station for them to control it, I hide a little alien, and they have to actually go and find the alien. So and it's set up in a way that they get interested in science and engineering, but actually there's a, a level of you know, they need to communicate. So I set it up there where there's one team at one laptop and they can send commands to the rover and drive it around. And another team have another laptop with the feeds from the video and neither team can see each other's screens. So the video team can see what's happening in front of them, but they have to tell the driver's team what to do. Drive forward certain centimetres or turn to the left certain amount of degrees. They have to communicate and work as a team in order to achieve a combined mission goal. And you know science and engineering and stem and all those things are great but actually communication teamwork are also just as important and i love watching it because it's so dynamic and it's so fun and it's so energetic and i set them up and i step back and off they go and it's so much fun to watch and i and i see some amazing logic and some amazing thought processes from young people and it's and it's so gratifying for me it recharges my batteries it makes me realize that there's so many cool young people out there with really brilliant little minds and they and they engage with these things so well and i really really enjoy it
3: oh sounds like it
4: i can't
1: uh, not mention the pinned tweets at the top of your twitter feed about Apollo 13 which is obviously as we all know the best film ever made <laughs> and I, what I was shocked by you were saying 2025 it will be 30 years old the film the film not the not the mission what, what is so let let me just ask you this
4: in, in your opinion what is so awesome about the film Apollo 13 i was at uh... Just leaving school when it came out, and I and I was aware of the film, and I enjoyed it at the time, but I didn't realize that in deep inside me was this raging space nerd that had to get out. and And since then, I've rewatched the film, and I've really enjoyed it. And now I'm an engineer, I can appreciate not only what goes into a mission to the moon, and particularly a mission like Apollo 13, and the hardware, but making a movie. And all of the stuff that goes into making a movie. And the the fact that they they built mock-ups of the lunar module and the and the command module and put them inside a, an airplane and flew parabolas to make zero G. So they weren't trying to pretend it was zero G. It was essentially freefall in an airplane. That's we're not gonna pretend. We're gonna and it and it stands up to scrutiny. It's a good story. I mean, there's so much I love about the film and the music hooks me in, it makes me feel emotional. And obviously there's there's Tom Hanks. I mean, what can Tom Hanks do that's wrong? Um And, you know, there's some nice little things in there, nuggets in there for real space nodes as well with the real gym level showing up at the end and things. So it's 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 for me, it's it doesn't. Get any any worse on rewatches. I can watch it as many times, and I really enjoyed it. That's uh, what Richard
3: does, and I say to him, "You do know, that the outcome watch- <laughs> is still going to be the same." Yeah.
1: <laughs> whenever whenever anyone makes a mistake of saying what film should we watch tonight, <laughs> yeah. it's,
5: it's, it's always those, Apollo
1: thirteen. But it's, yeah. all these groans go out. But it's a brilliant film. It's so engaging, and it's dramatic. And you still can't believe they make it back to Earth. No, it no is, I know it is it, a good it, film. It is a it's
4: a it's a fantastic film, and you know, I. I, I it is my favourite film of all time, and it's and it's number one in my in my space movie list as well. But you know, there's there's uh, there's other contenders as well. The films like The Martian, I appreciate the things like The Martian because it because it really is a fun film, but it looks at not too distant from reality as well. So it's, there's certain some things that are obviously a bit of a stretch of the imagination, but it's it's based in reality and it's actually you know a good film to watch and they, and it's in the fact that engineering and science is what saves the day as well. You know, people people being clever and thinking and understanding problems and solving complex problems is what saves the day in both the films. And that for me really, you know, I guess that's, I'm an engineer and I solve problems and it really it really gets me going when I see these things happening. And particularly with Apollo 13, that it was actually for real. I know the film has got some, some stretches of the truth, but a lot of it is true and it really happened. They were real human beings at risk. And I can only imagine what it would have been like at the time to not have known how the outcome was going to be. And not to know. I mean, that's just phenomenal, really, to think back. You've
3: made me think, actually, that we ought to Let's have... watch it tonight. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. I've got a professional bake-off to get. <laughs> or oh, chef, I think. Chef, yeah, yeah. To catch up on, I think. And I've got a Hawkeye. We've still got about the... and a bit of Beatles, another seven hours of The Beatles to watch. About 15 hours of The Beatles. I'm sure like you that. can squeeze in a little uh, bit. <laughs> yeah, sort of thing. If anybody wants to get in touch with us, let us know what you think your favourite space, space film. film is i think yeah. it'd be interesting to to see if uh if apollo 13 comes up in the top three i suspect it might but john chinner from sorry what was the company you worked for again? Oh, i can't remember now <laughs> <it>. <laughs> airbus defense and space thank you very much for joining us
1: and we will have uh, apollo 13 engineer Joey woodfill i'm hoping to get him back for january oh for great the january sir. podcast he's got so many stories and he really is one of those interviews where you just press record and sort of sit back. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but a real Apollo 13 engineer definitely will get back on the podcast. You're listening to the Space Boffins podcast. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists.
3: And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do so by email info at boffinmedia.co.uk or podcast at spaceboffins.org.
1: And that does work. I've checked it.
3: Good and yeah. various social media platforms. In fact, a big shout out to. A bit to, of a
1: disclaimer, isn't it? Yeah. Various social media platforms. Well,
3: I just couldn't be. I was going to use the a word there, but yeah. I just couldn't be bothered to mention it all. But now, the time you've interrupted me now, I could have said it now, so I've Ooh. saved no time whatsoever. What, Twitter, Facebook. Oh, don't, oh. We're not even. <sighs> on, are we on it? Did oh, we stop find? It. Did we find the? Did we
1: find the login for Instagram? Yes, I did. Okay.
3: Yeah. Uh, something went out. Very recently, like three weeks. Okay, right. I was about to say a big shout out to Tom Ettinger from the United States for getting in touch after our last podcast. That was a November one, because he thought the interview with NASA astronaut Jessica Meyer. Oh, no, I got that wrong. Mia. I know it was Mia as a meerkat. I remember you saying that. (laughs) Was, and I quote, wonderful and he had a question involving special relativity after hearing our James Webb space telescope conversation with ESA's Mark McCochran now since I last studied relativity as a student and uh, I don't think you've ever studied it have you Rich no no, no I have, I, well no, we've no uh, Tom we've decided that we're going to get Mark <laughs> himself to answer your question in the next podcast he doesn't know this yes but but yet, yeah, but I will be sending him an email and i fingers crossed he will answer your question in the next podcast which will be the first space boffins for 2022 so do listen out for that
1: in the 64 years since the dawn of the space age we've managed to fill space with tons of rubbish just as we've done on earth Only this month, the ISS had to dodge a cloud of debris generated by a Russian anti-satellite missile test. There is, though, a renewed effort to do something about it. Earlier in the year, the first space debris removal test mission was launched. It's called ELSA-D, a joint UK and Japanese project. And the control room is at Harwell here in Oxfordshire in the UK. I visited there a few days ago where I spoke to Jake Gear, Head of Space Surveillance and Tracking at the UK Space Agency, and Jason Forshaw, Head of Future Business at operator Astroscale. And I should warn you, this report does feature a cuddly toy. Well, this is tremendously exciting. My first mission control room for at least 18 months. and um, This is the control room for the ELSA-D satellite. Jason, what is ELSA-D?
5: LCD is a demonstration mission that we've launched back in March and it's going to be the world's first commercial demonstration of debris removal services in that it's a mission that goes up there and can actually uh, dock and undock to mature technology to get rid of all of this space junk that's threatening our space environment. we'll we'll talk more about what there is up there. Let me describe
1: the room here. I mean, you know, as mission control rooms go, it's pretty small, but it's got the traditional tiered ranks of computers, two tiers coming down in a bit like a Apollo mission control. And then in front of me, a wall of screens in the top left hand corner there's a, a globe where you can see the position of the satellite right now in fact it's right over the middle of the pacific heading up to or down to depending on your perspective uh, hawaii and then we've got various other screens of data what point we're going to receive the signals from the satellite have i missed anything there jason
5: uh, well, yeah, I guess you can see on the screen uh, quite a lot of the live data that's coming in from the satellite now. So the actual operators, they're not in the room today, but they do have the ability to access all of this remotely from home. So they are keeping track of the satellite, making sure everything's fine and present.
1: Now, you've got a model of the, the satellite here as well. In fact, there's two models. We'll come to the second model in just a second. Model number one, this is a half-size model. So uh, I guess this is looks like about three shoeboxes kind of bolted together with uh, solar panels on the side. The real one is, is what a, as big as a fridge. We were, we were discussing how the
5: size of it. Fridge or washing machine, small fridge or washing machine. Yeah, small fridge or washing machine size. It's about one metre by one and a half metres. And the satellite itself, it's a
1: boxy satellite with the two solar arrays sticking out of the sides. But there's another
5: part of it, which is there's another satellite attached to it. We actually carry our own space junk with us. It's a small little satellite, and what it does, it simulates a piece of space debris. And so we launch the two satellites together, the space junk, which we're calling the client, and then the actual servicer, which is the thing that would go after the debris. And we actually release the client and then recapture it again. And we do this several times in a series of experiments to actually mature this technology of docking in space. As we look at the screen here, you've got the
1: the satellite, we can see it's coming down over the Pacific, it's heading towards Antarctica at the moment. There are two actual numbers there, there's ELSA-D and there's one just below it. Does that mean the two are attached together at the moment?
5: Yes, absolutely. So, ELSA-D and its debris satellites, the service and debris satellite, are attached together right now. Back in August, we did a successful test capture demonstration. So, we actually released the debris satellite and quickly recaptured it, which matured a lot of those different technologies on board, such as the magnetic capture system and various types of operation. But, yeah, as you say, right now they're they're attached and we'll wait for uh, later experiments next year. But you know it works. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We successfully confirmed that we released the actual debris satellite and recaptured it again. So that's fantastic that uh, the magnetic capture system is all operational. Jake, let me turn to
1: you. You're head of space surveillance and tracking for the UK Space Agency. Now, Jason touched on on some of this, but what is the extent of the problem right now in terms of space debris of this junk surrounding the Earth?
2: Well, there's probably around 3,000 working satellites in orbit right now. There's, there's tens of thousands of pieces of debris bigger than uh, a Coke can, um, but there's around about 130 million pieces of debris um, bigger than uh, a millimetre. So these could be paint flecks from a, an old satellite. It could be a spanner dropped by an astronaut in orbit, because they have dropped things from the space station. It could be old bits of rockets uh, or other things floating around in space. Now, these things move at such a high rate at um, tens or hundreds or even thousands of miles an hour, depending on their relative speeds with each other, because they're all in different orbits, that actually, if, if that piece of debris collides with your satellite or your space station, it's going to probably terminate that satellite or that space station. It's going to cause some major issues for whatever's happening up there. And because we depend on satellites so much in our everyday life, for our weather forecasts, for our, our banking, for the, the navigation in your on your phone or in your car losing a satellite in orbit has a major effect on life back down here on earth and that's why companies like astroscale are starting to act but also why we as the uk government and other governments around the world are really taking this problem very seriously
1: you say other governments but we just had the other day the russians testing a system where they they destroyed a satellite thereby creating more
2: debris Yeah, that was unfortunate. Anything that creates more debris in orbit is is making a current problem worse. Uh, and as well as the, the debris that's created, there's now more and more satellites being launched. So companies like SpaceX or, or OneWeb are launching hundreds or thousands of satellites over the next few years. So that congestion in orbit of working satellites is getting worse at the same time as the amount of debris, stuff that doesn't work, is also getting worse. And that really is, is a growing problem. Right now, people can manage that by uh, using op centres like we're standing in today to, to look at the collisions and, and work out Maneuvers to avoid it but if you give it five or ten years when there's tens of thousands of satellites in orbit not a couple of thousand tens of thousands and the debris is still up there because it takes hundreds of years in some cases to come back down are we going to be able to carry on using satellites in the same way we are now is it just going to become too busy too congested for us to use earth's orbit the way we want to jason
1: you're testing this technology to remove debris from orbit what's the what's the next stage what stage i mean you know this is only a demonstration mission isn't it
5: Mm, absolutely so the next stage for elsa d is to next year continue its demonstrations but we're also maturing in the uk the elsa m demonstration and m stands for multi-client so this vehicle we're creating in the uk with the help of a big uk supply chain is looking at actually removing multiple pieces of debris as opposed to one debris at a time And in that scenario, this mission would go up, it would capture one piece of debris, bring it down, drop it off, so that piece of debris would burn up, and then move up after another one. So we could do this several times, maybe three or four potential times, and actually remove multiple satellites at once.
1: So the idea is you drag it down to a lower orbit, then you ping back up to go and get some more stuff, because you don't want your satellite to create another lump of space debris.
5: Yeah, that's absolutely it. Once we've captured the piece of debris, the, uh, the failed satellite, we bring it back down to a lower orbit um, below the space station, hopefully. Once we drop it off, it uh, goes back into the Earth's atmosphere and, and burns up. And that's when we proceed with the next uh, piece of debris that needs removal. And you're already fitting docking
1: plates to satellites being manufactured now that you could use your technology
5: on to drag them out of orbit. Yes, absolutely right. So this docking plate, it's a um, simple passive plate, which is very light, uh, low cost. And we're encouraging a lot of satellite manufacturers to actually fit their satellites uh, with these docking plates. And of course, what that means is that there's a standardized interface. Then in the future, if you want to capture it, either with magnetic capture, such as with our system or with robotic capture or something else, uh, there's actually a plate there you can do that with. I did
1: tease that there 's actually another model here. Can you just show us the other model? This is amazing. This is going to be the uh this must be the most desirable toy in the space industry for
5: for christmas it 's actually a, a well you describe it we 've got a very cute plush toy here um where the servicer and the client, the client can kind of stick onto the nose of the servicer. It looks kind of a bit like a dog, but um yeah it 's been very very popular.
1: <laughs> so it's about the size, I guess, of one of those um, giant novelty dice you might have hanging over your um, your windscreen uh, in the in the car with the two two wings. Very, very cute. I mean, you know, it, this has got to be a challenge, isn't it? How do you make a satellite look cute? You've managed it here. Cuddly toy satellite. Jake, we've we touched on some of the next plans that AstraScale has. What, there's a bigger picture here, though, because the UK's putting quite a lot of money in,
2: into this. Mm, so we've recently put Astroscale on a, on a contract and another company called ClearSpace, a Swiss company of a base in the UK, uh, as well as SSTL, a UK company to study a national, a UK mission to go up and remove at least two pieces of debris from orbit as well. So to go up into space, to remove two old UK satellites, which are no longer working and take them back into a, a lower altitude to deorbit safely. Because it's quite important to us as the UK that we are acting sustainably in space. The litter or the, um, the old debris that we've left up there we have the responsibility to to go and clean it up. In addition to what we're doing nationally on removing debris, we've got some other wider initiatives as well. Um, One of those is space surveillance and tracking. Networks have... Radars, or telescopes, or even lasers, to track debris from the ground or in space, um, and then use our own systems and our own analysts based in the northeast of England to to look at and predict potential collisions. Because collisions equals more debris. We're also looking wider at the more international piece. Well, that was going to be my question. Because isn't this an, an- international?
1: problem? I mean some countries seem to be contributing to the problem, other countries seem to be trying to
2: solve the problem but it doesn't seem very joined up. It it is difficult to get all the countries around the world to agree to the same set of principles or rules for how we work in space. Mm. So there is a particular committee of the UN called the Committee for the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space um, which drafted a set of of guidelines so non-binding guidelines that the UK and other nations have chosen to, to put into our legal requirements, our regulations. But other nations haven't gone that far. So actually by by us putting them into our regulations we're, we're perhaps making our industry a bit less competitive because they have to spend more money on on deorbiting and, and safety than others. So that's why we're, we're working with the UN and also other partners around the world to try and update these guidelines. There is a very specific guideline which is quite famous in the space sector called the 25 year rule. So this is the rule that when your satellite finishes its life after 25 years it has to to come down and deorbit safely or be moved to a safe Four bits, so it can't be at risk of collision. The 25 year rule was probably thought of around about mm. 25 years ago. Is it still sufficient for the current way of working where we've got commercial operators like SpaceX and OneWeb launching tens of thousands of satellites? We're not sure it is. But actually, trying to get countries around the world to reduce that rule from 25 to, to 15 or 10, which would make space more sustainable, is difficult because that means more costs different types of missions and and people perhaps look to their own industry more than looking to those wider rules
1: i talked about you know these tests of these uh, anti-satellite weapons couldn't this technology or this sort of technology also be used as a weapon itself to remove satellites from orbit you could remove a nation's satellites my satellite
2: for example from orbit I suppose it could be. I mean, space is a classic uh, dual-use technology area because anything you can use for, for peaceful purposes can be reused for other purposes. For us, it's it's almost um, more important to make sure that space is more sustainable. We're a civil agency and, and our intention is to make sure that it is purely for, for civil purposes. In reality, what we think is most important here um, is making sure that whatever goes up there right now is brought back down safely, securely and sustainably. Uh, Jason, I mean, you know, just looking at the control room, I know there
1: aren't operators here, but they're all operating from home, which in itself is, is pretty amazing that you can, you can do that. This must be quite exciting to know that right now, where's your satellite? Your satellite is over Antarctica right now, and we can see, you know, signals from it, we can see all the, the data coming in, that you know this is
5: actually happening as Jake said before, you know, there are tens of thousands of satellites that are going to be launched in the next decade, and this is a serious issue. If we don't deal with satellites that have failed, then we could hinder our future access to services in space. So, you know, people have been talking about debris removal for many, many years, I think even since the 1960s, there were academic reports as to where this problem could go. And I think nowadays we know that we have to ensure that future satellites we launched are prepared for removal and do get removed when they fail, and that we also start cleaning up some of the existing pieces of debris up there in space so yeah it's 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 all kicked off now with the elsa d mission and in the next five years or so we're going to see a lot more missions in this area launch so very exciting times
1: jason Forshort from astroscale you also heard uh, jake gear from the uk space agency i have to say listening to that i sounded a little over excited and when i get over excited i get a bit norfolk yeah, I, I dropped my not on the end of the Norfolk. Yeah, I get a bit, a bit. Sorry, no. Oh, no,
3: that's not, that's not true. Is it? No, wait, is that, that's practically that racist. It's it's pratical racist, pratical racist, racist uh, but
1: it was. It was so exciting to be out, out talking to real people in a real place in a real control room, yeah. and it was genuinely an impressive control. room. We're all room. going a bit stag
3: st- crazy. Well, <laughs> wow. well, I I got out recently into London to see Nigella Lawson though so that was not space but it was just It was like a warm hug. It was just all about food and drink. Anyone think
1: listening to this podcast, you're actually more interested in food food (laughs) than space. Well, Well, food and space. But not space food, because space food's horrible.
3: Ah, wait until you hear this now. Our next piece, because um, recently you may have seen some unusual images on social media from the International Space Station. Because astronauts, I I honestly didn't expect to see this. (laughs) They were photographed enjoying a taco. Uh, and they were flavoured with chilies that were grown on board and it was all part of a NASA plant experiment that took 137 days in total. It began in June with 48 seeds and resulted in a crop of 26 chilli peppers, the first being picked at the end of October. So who better to discuss this than Emma Doughty, an ethnobotanist with a degree in astrophysics, who's also the presenter of the brilliantly named, as we've said, Gardeners of the Galaxy podcast. And she began by explaining the significance of those space chilies.
0: This is absolutely a first. This is the first time that anybody has grown a fruiting vegetable in space. It's a big challenge to get crops to fruit in space, to flower and fruit. And it is a major step forward for NASA to be able to do this.
3: Now, which is the, the bigger challenge? Is it the. Uh, Microgravity—is it the the light, the fact that you know you're, I suppose you're getting forty-five minutes worth of light every every orbit, and then darkness, or or the fact that actually you have to water a plant, and that's not going to be easy in microgravity.
0: Those are all challenges and NASA has got some very sort of technical things to overcome a lot of those. The chilies are growing in the advanced plant habitat, which is about the size of a mini fridge and it comes um, tricked out with LED lights. So that's where the lighting comes from. And NASA can control which lights are coming on and for how long. Plants can be very much affected by how much light they're getting and the quality and the colour of light. So that's one of the things that you need NASA is trying out various light recipes they call them to see what works best. Isn't it primarily blue light that's the light that I know human beings
3: like blue light because they always tell you you shouldn't Watch your phone when you know, <laughs> look, at, look at your phone when you go to bed. Is that
0: the same with plants? You know? It is to a certain extent, but they're also, I mean, this is one of the things that we're still discovering how plants use light in the absence of gravity because it does make a difference and they look towards light for cues as to where to grow. So, yes, they do like blue light more on Earth, but in, in space, it's a little bit different, which is why NASA is tweaking these light recipes to find out what works best.
3: I'm surprised about. The, the fruiting plant, because I thought Helen Sharman had taken a lemon plant into space or or maybe it was a lemon seed, I, I, but I'm sure I remember her saying to me something about a lemon. Yes, yeah,
0: she said that in her autobiography, that one of the things she took to the Mir space station was a small lemon tree. And I think you know the idea was to keep that alive. It was probably more for their well-being than anything else. I don't remember anybody ever saying that they got it to fruit.
3: Ah, right. Okay. So this is is something special. Why hadn't they done that before? Was it just purely the the technical challenges? And and had they tried? Because they have grown other plants, haven't they, on, on the space station?
0: Yes, over the last few years, NASA has had some really great successes with leafy vegetables. And we've seen pictures of astronauts eating salad. But those are very quick growing plants. They're very small plants. Um, And so just expanding that in in time is one of the challenges. The advanced plant habitat is... Better able to conduct long term experiments. I mean, we're talking for the chilies, they were growing for months before any of the fruit could be harvested. So, as you can imagine, that's quite a lot of time to have an experiment running on the International Space Station.
3: And in terms of watering, because, you know, as you say, taking, I've tried to grow chilies <laughs> myself, and they do take a long time and they do take a long time to fruit. But also, like any plant, they take a lot of water and you have to water them almost every day. And when it's a valuable resource, is that just part of the deal with the recycling of Of water on the space station full stop or do they use some sort of condensation thing with this advanced plant habitat?
0: The advanced plant habitat does in fact actually have a system that can recycle the water that that the plants transpire they call it when the, the plants are breathing out water so it does have its own recycling system. Watering plants in space is a massive challenge you would think being a gardener that it's one of the easiest things but water behaves so strangely in microgravity i mean have you seen the pictures of the of astronauts wringing out wet towels what you see is the water sort of clings onto their hand and goes up their wrist. Um, And when you're you're talking about plant roots, plant roots need access to water, but they also need access to oxygen, to air and and gas exchange spaces. So you can get a scenario where there's too much water and the plant roots are suffocating or where the water has gone to the wrong place and the plants are drying out. So yes, watering plants in space is a massive challenge, but they do seem to have got it right with these chilies. And which way? Do they grow? Because on
3: Earth, well, well it's just great because on Earth, you know, we know plants grow towards the sunlight.
0: Now, that's an interesting point, actually, because NASA has just put out a press release saying that they've already learned two things from these chilies. And the first is that they've grown a little bit more slowly on the space station than they would on Earth. And they attribute that to water in the early stages. But also the chilies themselves are held on to the stems with little sort of shoots called pedicels. And those are growing differently than they grow on Earth. On Earth, they'd be very much sort of trending downwards. But on the space station, they're a bit more horizontal. So there is a difference. But basically, the plants look the same.
3: Now, you said that the chilli plant was the first Fruiting plant to be grown on the space station. Have they grown root vegetables? You know, have they taken soil up and grown, you know, carrots or anything like that?
0: Uh, Well, they don't take soil. There is normally some sort of special, sort of growing substrate to deal with the watering issues. And in actual fact, last year, about this time last year, the Advanced Plant Habitat grew the first crop of radishes. So we saw pictures of, of astronauts eating radishes in space. So that that was a major success as well.
3: I must have missed that, but I must admit, <laughs> I love chilli, but obviously I like my chilli on, on other food, which is probably why they had it with a, a taco. Radishes, I, I can leave radishes yeah. quite, you know, <laughs> quite bitter. When you're probably yearning for fresh food, it's small steps, isn't it? let's just say that. It's small. So it's not quite a lovely, crunchy red pepper or a, or an apple, is it?
0: It yes. isn't quite yet, uh, no, but I think after that long in space, you'd be quite grateful for anything fresh and Of course, astronauts get a bit stuffy headed and they say their sense of taste is a bit dulled, so a chili pepper or even of a radish course. which you might not like on earth yes. very much, probably that sort of burst of flavor that you get is a real sort of pick-me up for someone who's been stuck stuck in a tin can for like six months.
3: you're right, so many astronauts have said that to us actually about that you you're desperate for really spicy food so that totally makes sense and i suppose you know sort of my on my side joking aside that this is an important experiment for potentially much longer stays in space whether it's orbiting the moon or potentially going on long longer term trips to mars and back that actually having plants to grow will be psychologically a huge boost as well as potentially nutritionally, I don't know.
0: Yes, I mean... Early on in the Soviet space program, they were looking into the psychological benefits of growing plants, and they've always had that side of it running. Uh, NASA are just doing that now looking, you know, sort of really studying scientifically, the effect that having these plants on board is having on the astronauts. But you get all of the anecdotes from the astronauts saying they loved having something growing, something to look at, something to tend while they're up there in, in this mass of wires and steel. And, and, you know, it's so industrial on the space station, just having something green and growing. It's such a big lift.
3: And probably a lot of people can relate to that now during the pandemic <laughs> yeah. because so many people took to green spaces or their gardens or if they didn't have a garden to growing plants because yeah. yes, it, it makes you feel better.
0: Yeah, we evolved in a green plant environment, and we need that. And we're seeing that on Earth. That you know, even people and doctors are prescribing going out in nature to make us feel better. So, if you can imagine when you're you know trapped away from any of it, how much of a loss that must be.
3: And are any of the discoveries that uh, space agencies like NASA? Uh, making about the, the growing of, of plants on the space station, reaching or affecting how we grow things on Earth.
0: Yes, NASA does a lot of work sort of promoting their space to ground concept, which is the research on the International Space Station and the effect that it's having on ground on the ground. Um, with some of the plant things, it's not something that you would perhaps see in the papers, but you know, it's sort of fundamental plant research that will help us grow crops in a warmer future. Um and there is a lovely story. So, this was uh, March 2020. A French company called Space Cargo Unlimited sent 320 vine cuttings to the International Space Station. So, those vine cuttings spent six months in space, just sort of sitting there. And then they came back to Earth sort of early this year and they were planted in a scientific research station in Bordeaux. And they grew really strongly, really quickly. And the hope is that. The analysis of this, of of course, is ongoing and will take a long time. But the hope is that their stay in space will have altered them. The stress of spaceflight will have altered them in such a way that they can be developed into new, more tolerant vine grape varieties that will mean that Bordeaux can keep producing wine, even though climate change is affecting how vines grow there.
3: Now I never knew when I started this conversation that we'd end up on two of my favourite things: space and wine. But but there you go. That's really great. And, I, and I've got to just finally ask you. Obviously, the the bane of um, anybody's life when they're growing plants are pests. Now I'm not expecting there to be the the, the silvery trail of snails um, (laughs) on the space station. But, you know, do any pests get in? Have there been any registered plant pests um, in space?
0: Well, I mean, NASA sterilizes everything before it goes into space. So no, there have been no snails and slugs that have made it on board. There's been the occasional mosquito that sort of snuck in before the shuttle took off or whatever. But there have been problems with plant pathogens, plant diseases. And in fact, one of those very famously, Scott Kelly, I think it was 2015, end of 2015, Scott Kelly was growing a crop of zinnia flowers in the little veggie growing system. Now veggie is a little bit basic. It doesn't have a lot of instrumentation or whatever, but basically it became apparent that the plants were getting too much water. And a fungus that was already on board the space station, because, of course, we take all of our microbes with us, all our bacteria and our, our fungi go along with us. We can't not take them. So something that is always in our environment sort of took advantage of that damp in the veggie growing system, started growing mould on the zinnias. And uh, Scott Kelly was a little bit worried about this. And he rang the ground team at four o'clock in the morning to say there's mould growing on the zinnias. So they had to have a little sort of pre-breakfast conference to decide what they were going to do about that and it did involve just sort of turning up the fan and aerating a bit Um, and then Scott said look it will be easier if I take control of this experiment so I don't have to radio down to the ground every time I want to change a setting and they went okay and gave him sort of a one-page care guide for zinnias and he became the first sort of on-orbit gardener the first official (gasps) on-orbit gardener and because of his sort of loving care and his tweaking of the settings and making sure they were watered when they needed to be watered rather than on a schedule, he managed to produce this bouquet of zinnias, which he harvested and showed off to the world for Valentine's Day the following year.
3: Botanist and Gardeners of the Galaxy podcast presenter, Emma Doughty. Wasn't she fun? She was great.
1: I I wish we'd thought of Gardeners of the Galaxy. (laughs) I know. It's just genius. It deserves to be the most popular science podcast.
3: Well, hopefully it, it will be after this. And that's it
1: for our final podcast of 2021. We've been very kindly supported by the UK Space Agency, and this year we brought you plenty of space scientists and engineers, space journalists. We had author Andy Weir on.
3: Yeah,
1: Andy oh. Weir as The Martian. Yeah, or
3: Artemis, or how uh,
1: yeah. What was the book? It's it's behind what is, us? What I was, was, his I sh- I was book? trying to find it. <laughs> it's a very good point. <laughs> it was on the shelf behind us. Yeah,
3: I think I might have moved. Yeah, there. it was Artemis. No, wasn't it? it wasn't Artemis. I oh, was that? What's that? No. Oh, that's it, embarrassing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. We say, oh, we had him and we can't recognise his But I'm just going to Google it. Hold on a second. Hold <laughs> it, on was on,
1: it was on um, Andy It Weir. was on. the shelf here. Project Hail
3: Mary. Project
1: Hail Mary. The author of Project Hail
3: Mary. <laughs> no one will know. <laughs> no one will know. And there was also space journalists. Um, oh, author, uh, Rebecca Siegel, I loved. She wrote... To Fly Among the Stars, which is about the the Mercury 13. And Chinese SpaceX, well, he was not Chinese, that sounds wrong. He's an expert on the Chinese SpaceX uh, programme, Andy Jones. He, he had a cat. Absolutely brilliant. He had a that's right, <laughs> while, we were, while we were doing that. I think that's January 2021 podcast. I think we put a picture of it. It was so disconcerting, wasn't it? Because at one point we were talking, we could actually see him in this case, and at one point we were talking to a cat's bottom. <laughs> <laughs> it, was very,
1: it was very disturbing. Uh, we have also had astronauts, including uh, Samantha Christopheretti.
3: I mean, this is an amazing list. Yeah. This is yeah. just the last well, 12 months said of Space Goffins. One. Yeah.
1: Uh, 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 it's an amazing. I guess preempt. Right. Um, okay. We've Terry got uh, Terry Yeah, Terry Verts, uh, Helen Sharman. Anna Fisher. Nicole Stott. Uh, Jessica Mir, as in Meerkat. And, of course, uh, newly minted astronaut, Wally Wally Funk. Funk.
3: Oh, yeah. I think that's probably my highlight of 2021, to finally see her in space. And if you've not yet bought my book, Wally Funk's Race for Space, why the hell not? Uh, Anyway, have a great holiday season, Christmas, New Year, whatever religion, whatever you celebrate. Let's hope. 2022 will finally see the end of this pandemic and we look forward to spending it with you with all things space
1: and enjoy settling around the tv watching apollo 13